This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, the psychology of bariatric surgery. We actually have a pre-surgical psychological education group that we require patients to come to. And one of the topics that we focus on is actually self-esteem and self-image. The psychology of bariatric surgery, when Radio Health Journal returns. Research shows that California raisins may positively impact diabetic nutrition, registered dietitian Dr. Jim Painter says. People with type 2 diabetes mellitus who consumed raisins during a 12-week study had a 23% reduction in post-meal glucose levels and a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure compared to a group eating a comparable amount of snack crackers. While cardiovascular disease is affected by various factors, these findings build upon an earlier study showing that raisins may significantly lower blood pressure and post-meal glucose levels among people people with prehypertension. Find more info at loveyourraisins.com. It's no secret that obesity is increasing. About two-thirds of Americans are at least overweight, and a third of us are obese. Severe obesity is increasing even faster. So it's probably no surprise that hundreds of thousands of Americans every year are turning to bariatric surgery to lose the weight they've tried so hard to shed. But weight loss surgery is no walk in the park, even beyond the risk of complications. Successful patients lose a lot more than all that extra weight. They also stand to lose an entire way of life, and that's not easy for anyone. There's so many changes that take place for a patient going into surgery as well as when they come out of surgery. There's a a whole new lifestyle they need to adjust to. That's Dr. Adam Crane, a clinical psychologist with the Kane Center for Advanced Surgical Weight Solutions and Suburban Surgical Care Specialists in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. It's not just about their stomach being made to a more manageable size. They have to learn how to eat in a different way. They need to learn to appreciate the relationship they may have with food from an emotional standpoint in a different way. The way that people relate to them oftentimes changes. So it's going to be necessary for them to be prepared mentally and behaviorally as well as physically to make the best changes possible, and that's where psychology comes in. At most centers, people seeking bariatric surgery must take a battery of psychological tests to screen out poor candidates. Anyone who exhibits any kind of binge eating behaviors, significant binge eating behaviors, even associated with bulimic behaviors, you know, self-induced purging, they would not be good candidates because we want someone who is looking to lose weight for the right reasons. They can also do a lot of physical damage to their system if they're intentionally making themselves sick. Other people that wouldn't be good candidates would be people with substance abuse issues or others with untreated or uncontrolled mental health issues. Someone who isn't thinking properly or rationally about the surgery. We know, for instance, that people that come in that are expecting a a magic bullet, they think they're going to have surgery on Monday and they're going to be getting skinny on Tuesday. Unfortunately, that's not a reality. Obesity took a lifetime to develop and it takes a long time to cure. So the people with unrealistic expectations are a major tip-off right out of the gate. That's Dr. Nick Nicholson, medical director of the Nicholson Clinic for Weight Loss Surgery in Plano, Texas, and author of Weight Loss Surgery, The Real Skinny. Those are people that think that the surgery itself is going to restrict them from eating and therein is going to lie all of their success. Unfortunately, you can cheat any of these operations. You know, we have patients who have their entire stomach removed due to cancer or ulcers or trauma, and we have ways of telling them to eat, such as drinking high-calorie liquids and insure, things of that nature, where they can actually maintain or even gain weight. So people need to understand that it's not just the surgery. I mean, that may be just 10% of the whole deal, but 90% of this 
is the behavioral change and the lifestyle changes that have to come along. Crane says candidates for weight loss surgery can expect to spend three to six months preparing for the lifestyle changes ahead of them. We actually have a pre-surgical psychological education group that we require patients to come to. And one of the topics that we focus on is actually self-esteem and self-image because it is such an important part of recovery, the emotional recovery from the surgery. So, you know, some of the things that we encourage people to do is set smaller goals, make them more measurable, make them more achievable. Instead of 200 pounds, set a goal of 25 pounds, 50 pounds, and achieve that. Through the smaller achievement, there starts to be a better sense of accomplishment, a better sense of pride, and people tend to do much better. But it's not just a patient's own identity that may change. A large weight loss can also drastically alter relationships with spouses, partners, and friends. It can often get rocky. People have always known you, or for quite some time anyway, in the context of being morbidly obese. So your spouse may have only known you as a morbidly obese person. They may be very comfortable with their wife being overweight. She was safe. Nobody was asking her out on the side. Nobody was giving her attention. They were always themselves the center of attention, and now that dynamic has completely changed. Friends of yours may have viewed you as the person that they could go to the pizza buffet with or go out to happy hour and eat and have high-calorie liquids, and now you're not that person anymore. So you may not be as fun or appealing to them any longer. All that can mean even more stress than the patient was dealing with before. And their old tried-and-true coping mechanism, eating, is gone. Nicholson says keeping the weight off for good depends on developing new ways to deal with stress. The reality is, for a lot of people, eating is a coping mechanism. Whether you are excited, stressed, nervous, depressed, angry, the things that made you stressed are going to be there the day after surgery. If you're in a bad marriage, it's still going to be bad. If you have financial troubles, you're still going to have financial troubles. If you have a sick child, the child is still going to be sick. So you still need coping mechanisms. That's not going to go away. Our job is to try to help you find more sophisticated coping mechanisms and healthier coping mechanisms. Because if you don't, then you're either going to find a way to eat around your operation Or worse, which we do see, you're going to find some very destructive behaviors. You're going to start drinking. You're going to start smoking. New coping mechanisms can include psychotherapy counseling for behavior modification. Crane also advises staying in touch with their surgeon, working with the bariatric team, and seeing a dietitian regularly. Other things that they can do to remind themselves of how far they've come is I always encourage them to create something called a photo journal. So through their process, I would say every month, take a couple pictures, a front view, a side view of themselves. And when they're feeling down, they can thumb through these pictures, you know, put them in an album and look back and look at themselves in the mirror and compare what does the picture from three months ago look like compared to what I'm seeing in the mirror. And the more they can identify more provable, more tangible results, the easier it is to accept the new image and to believe that they're actually accomplishing what they set out to do. To avoid complications and stay healthy after weight loss surgery, it's important for patients to follow the rules they get from their doctor. But experts are saying it's just as important to be mentally and emotionally prepared for the challenges ahead, or put it off until they're ready. You can learn more about the psychological aspects of bariatric surgery by visiting our website, radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer this week is Polly Hansen. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Chronic pain affects nearly 100 million Americans. 
For these patients, the condition is a heavy burden that consumes their life, taking a mental and physical toll. Unfortunately, many chronic pain patients are unsure where to turn after other treatments have done little to relieve their pain. For many of these patients, the latest advancement in spinal cord stimulation can offer meaningful pain relief and an improved path forward. The FDA recently approved Burst-DR Stimulation, a new therapy option for patients. Dr. Pankaj Mehta of Pain Specialist of Austin tells us more about this new therapy from St. Jude Medical. My job as a pain specialist is to provide my patients therapy options that can alleviate chronic pain and improve their quality of life. Burst-DR Stimulation is different than other spinal cord stimulation therapies. It was created by doctors to mimic naturally occurring patterns in the brain which can address both their emotional and physical response to chronic pain. To take the next step to learn more about Burst DR Stimulation, go to PowerOverYourPain.com. That's PowerOverYourPain.com. Implantation of a spinal cord stimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risks, such as paralysis, during the implantation procedure. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if spinal cord stimulation therapy is right for them. Medical notes this week. It's getting less and less common to be 16 and pregnant, but that MTV program is getting a little bit of the credit for yet another sharp decline in teen pregnancy. A report from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds that the teen birth rate dropped 8% last year. In the last 25 years, the teen birth rate has dropped by 64%. Officials mostly credit less sex and more contraception, but they say a healthy dose of sobering reality TV also plays a role. People who suffer from chronic headaches have a higher risk of developing an underactive thyroid. A study in the Journal of Head and Face Pain shows that people who suffer from cluster or tension headaches have about a 20% higher risk of hypothyroidism compared to a control group and people with migraines have more than a 40% higher risk. An underactive thyroid can cause weight gain, fatigue, and irregular menstrual cycles. Researchers don't know how headaches and the thyroid might be connected. If you're waiting for a train at a railroad crossing, should you turn your car off to save gas? Some people say no, restarting the car uses all the gas you'd save. But scientists at Argonne National Laboratory have found that if you're going to be idling for more than 10 seconds, Turning the car off is worth it. Plus, at least when it comes to carbon dioxide emissions, it's environmentally friendly, too. Researchers say if each car in the U.S. were to idle for six minutes per day, it would waste three billion gallons of gas and cost drivers more than $10 billion. It's a must to know how to type today, but most people are self-taught and don't use the touch typing techniques taught in school. However, a new study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology finds that doesn't matter. Non-standard typists are about 90% as fast as touch typists. So they question whether teaching kids to type by the book is really worth it. And finally, a number of cities have slapped stiff taxes on soda to try to get people to drink less. But a study in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management shows that those taxes may be less effective than officials hope. Researchers say stores pass along on average less than half of the tax and even less near borders with other cities where those taxes are not in effect. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. When your blood, tissue, or biopsy is sent to the lab, it's examined by a doctor you may never meet, but who may make a life-and-death diagnosis. That doctor is a pathologist. 
A pathologist is a physician whose unique skills are critical factors in your health care. Dr. Richard Friedberg is the president of the College of American Pathologists. Pathologists are the scientists of medicine. We convert medical data from a tissue sample into usable medical information by asking the right questions. The most important questions are the ones that have not been asked. Pathologists ask questions like, what further tests should be run? What other diagnoses should be considered? What do we not see that should be there? And we must constantly look back to improve health by asking about those that don't get well, as well as those who do. This culture of rigorous thought and curiosity drives pathologists to be precise, to ask and answer those extra questions, and to get your lab results right. For more information, go to yourpathologist.org. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.